Happy New Year. I'd love to invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 in your Bible. I'll read to you from that when we get to our main text for the morning in a few minutes. First, I'd like you to assess your relationship with power. Are you striving to have more of it? Do you feel that you're captain of your own ship? Do you find yourself a capable person, an influencer of men? Would you consider yourself, conversely, of low internal constitution? Are you living aware of your weaknesses, physical and otherwise? Do you see yourself as of having little power? Today I want to consider how we might view power. And I can't say it better than Kevin DeYoung does. He says, the strongest churches, as they appear, have the most weaknesses. And the weakest churches, as they look to the world, seem to have the most strength. When you think about strength and weakness in the Bible, it's obvious, but then it's confusing. Obvious, because we all know that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness, and weakness is what we want. And yet, it's not the case that weakness of every kind is what the Bible celebrates. All of us want strength. We wish we were thinner or more attractive or beefed up or more muscular. We'd all like to be smarter or more athletic or more musical or more successful or to have better kids or better grades and make a little more money, have a little more house and a little better car, maybe just a little better parking lot. We'd like more influence, more sway, more followers. Each of us desires, if we're honest, to be stronger than we are. But we know the Bible speaks more highly of weakness. Think about it from Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or from Corinthians, if I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So it seems then that Christians, as Christians, we ought to prefer weakness. And that's true, but it's also misleading. While God's power is perfect in our weakness, it's not always true then that ugly is better than being beautiful or poor is better than being rich or unintelligent is better than being intelligent or shabby is better than being solid or feeble is better than being powerful or having few gifts is better than having many gifts. I guess I didn't exactly let you off the chain with those exercise goals for the new year, right? We know the Bible prefers weakness over strength, but we're tempted to think that the first half of those pairs I just mentioned must be inherently more spiritual than the second. And if we think for a moment about the hero, heroes and the heroines in the whole Bible, we begin to realize that's not the case. Abraham was rich. Moses was mighty in power. Solomon was wise. Esther was beautiful before the king. Samson was strong. Paul seemed to be a pretty smart guy. So we don't want to say that if we were all just less intelligent or uglier or less successful, the church would reach its full potential, reach its full glory. So the question I ask myself and we ask ourselves today as we look at this church this morning is why then does the Bible prefer weakness to strength? And in what way does the Bible prefer weakness to strength? I think weakness applauded in the Bible is primarily a spiritual weakness. By that I mean a humility of mind, a brokenness of heart, a poverty of spirit. This is the intrinsically good kind of weakness, to be emptied of self, to be low and to be meek, to despise our own sinfulness. So weakness in this regard is better than strength because the temptation to forsake the Lord and rely on ourselves is so much greater when we have more obvious strengths. Let me give some examples. To be rich is not to be evil. 
there are all sorts of people in the Bible who are wealthy. It is possible to be rich and to be generous. It is not equivalent to be wicked, to be rich, but the Bible does teach, and really Jesus more than anyone else, that to have wealth, we see this in the church at Laodicea, is to have a very great danger. What is the danger of money? The danger of money is simply the danger of power and our relationship to it. The temptation for someone who is strong, and let me define strong, you could be financially powerful or strong, academically strong, musically strong, athletically strong, artistically strong. The danger for someone who is strong is to rely on yourself and not to rely on God. So as much as we pine for power, we are usually opened up for more spiritual good in the midst of our weakness. Uh, to quote one author, hardship reveals our idols. To quote another one, pain plants the flag of truth in the heart of the rebel soul. Looking for power is in the wrong places is the problem. Let me say that again. Looking for power in the wrong places is the problem. Jesus and the whole New Testament are constantly appealing to our desires for victory, for vindication, for rule, and for authority. Have you ever thought about it? The Bible doesn't stand like Buddhism stands to say things like the way to reach some state of nirvana is simply to get rid of your desires, to, to shuck them. We understand the Bible to say that we have desires and that's not shameful. It's not bad for you to have desires this morning. You don't have to deny yourself the fulfillment of every desire. But what Jesus is doing, it seems, is calibrating our desires for strength, for power, in a certain way. He says things like this. You know what? You want to live forever? I'll tell you how to live forever. You live forever by dying to yourself. You want to have rule and authority? You want to be first? Everyone wants to be first. Jesus says, you shouldn't want to be first, but since you do want to be first, I'll tell you how to be first. Be last, because the last shall be first. And on it goes. The problem is not that we have desires for victory and for vindication and success and endurance, but rather we look for these things, as I said, in the wrong places and even go about them in the wrong way. Strength can be good, but for the Christian, that strength that we rightly desire comes through the weakness of despairing of our own supposed strength and success. Our pride has to die a thousand little deaths on the journey of sanctification. Consider Hebrews 11, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. So this is a litany of success. And then it says this, they were made strong out of weakness. Another translation says their weakness was turned to strength. They became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. But the operative phrase for us today is their weakness was turned to strength. They were made strong out of weakness. Two things that seem not to go together, but in our sanctification does go together. They were made strong out of weakness. These heroes of the faith are not heroes because they're mealy-mouthed, they're passive or incompetent. No, they conquered kingdoms, shut the mouths of lions, routed armies. But it was all God's work through them. He's the one that turned their weakness to strength, just as he promises for us and for the church we're going to read about today in Philadelphia. 
that though they are small, though they're little, though they're weak, yet God's going to give them great strength, great power. We presume that the church at Philadelphia was a witnessing church, a loving church, a church with right doctrine, a church that pursued purity, because they're not called out for not being those things like the other churches in Revelation 2 and 3 were. We know that Philadelphia had little strength but held fast. They were a patient, faithful, maybe unimpressive, even small church. But there's a contrast between the church at Philadelphia and if you look up in chapter 3, the church at Sardis, which came just before it. The church at Sardis had a reputation of being alive. They had pursued a name for themselves. They had a reputation, you might remember from my previous sermon. It's the church that when people would drive by this church, they'd say, hey, let's stop and take a picture in front of that church. That's a beautiful building. That's a nice church. That's where the people go. It's big. They're growing. They're alive. And Jesus said to Sardis, you're dead. We are not to despise the day of small things, Zechariah says. God is making something big. Here, Philadelphia looked to be very insignificant, seemed to be powerless. But Jesus is going to tell them of their great power to come. We must not judge our meat by numbers or overt influence or even our own energy for the task at hand. For times we're tired and we're altogether in touch with our own limitations. I like to think of Philadelphia like a a small mission church in some rundown part of town. It's not the part of town you'd take visitors by and go to that side of town and say, look at this, look how good this is. Maybe it's a humble storefront. You might think of a a tiny rural church somewhere in rural America that might have a leaky roof and a limping budget, can barely afford staffing, but it's patient, it's enduring, it's devoted, without much to show for themselves except that they had opposition. They have weaknesses. That's what we know. I'm sure we don't know much about Philadelphia because Jesus' concerned here is not to tell them what they already know about themselves. Instead, it's to encourage them. It's to give them comfort. Of all the churches, little Philadelphia, and I'm not talking about the Philadelphia south of New York. I'm talking about Philadelphia on that horseshoe-shaped journey that the Apostle John sent the courier on through Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. We'd have gone one, two, three, four, five, six, and before we get to the seventh church at Laodicea, you would have had this church, Philadelphia, south and east of the church before at Sardis. I'm talking about that Philadelphia, a more original Philadelphia, a Philadelphia that was founded by a brother who loved his brother, and therefore the name was founded as a city of brotherly love, which stands in existence today as far as the name means, from philos, from love, of the brotherly kind as opposed to agape love or erotic love. This is the church of brotherly love, and this church did seem to love each other, for they're not indicted like the church at Ephesus for being unloving. But they seem to have little power. That much is clear. That much is very, very clear. So Jesus speaks to this church that has little power but has a big future. And that's what I would title the sermon today, Little Power, Big Future. And he speaks to the church that fits this description, any church that fits this description. If we fit this description, he would be speaking to us that we might have enlivened our hopes in him in three ways. I'm going to tell them to you, and then I'll read the scripture, and then I will preach of these three things to you. We want our hopes to be enlivened as a faithful church in these three ways. Number one, Jesus secures our salvation. Number two, Jesus sustains us personally. And number three, Jesus vindicates us ultimately. So follow that progression of securing, sustaining, and vindicating in this sermon. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. 
I'll read it to you. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word, you've not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading of his word and minister grace unto the hearers. You may be seated. Jesus secures our salvation. Jesus is self-described as holy and true here in verse 7. Do you see it? He says, the words of the one, the holy one, the true one. He's described as both holy in Revelation 15.4 and true again in Revelation 19.11 and in Revelation 6.10 said to be holy and true. These two things are descriptions of Jesus, the glorified Son, throughout the book of Revelation. In a different place in the Bible, the Apostle Peter had picked up on this moniker of calling Jesus holy and true, or righteous in this case, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 3. At the point we come to in this cross-reference I'm about to read, Peter had been through enough, sinking in the water, denial in the garden, cutting off the ear of Malchus. He had been through enough to learn not to depend on his own power or even his own pursuit of power. Even when he was allowed to heal others in powerful ways, Peter deflected praise and put it where it was due to Jesus because that's who secures. Listen to how Peter explains the supernatural healing of the lame beggar in Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 16. The lame beggar that was now healed clung to Peter and John. And all the people around were astonished. They were astounded utterly. They ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. And he said, men of Israel, you might say Jews, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at this, at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied, and notice this moniker, the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, the apostles say, and we say too. And his name, by faith in his name, that's going to be important today, 
has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And one day the great physician will return to give us all perfect health. Will he not? All of God's people perfectly healthy in him. But this is not that day. This is a day of continued labor, of struggle, of the day of small things that we're not to despise. A day when the people of God don't appear to have great power, strength. Jesus is not only the holy and righteous one, but Revelation 3.7 says that he has the key of David. Jesus is the true and better doorkeeper who perfectly judges the wheat from the chaff, who judges who gets in to salvation from who's out of salvation. It says in Revelation 3.7, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Jesus, knowing his Bible, is instructing John the Apostle, the author of the book of Revelation, to instruct the angel to the church at Philadelphia, to instruct the church at Philadelphia, and thus to instruct all the churches by alluding to the bad and the good doorkeepers of David's house, the temple. That's talked about in Isaiah 22. Isaiah 22.1 records the powerful refrain, the oracle concerning the valley of vision, a familiar title from a great Puritan work. The title the ESV gives to Isaiah 22 is an oracle concerning Jerusalem, these Jews, Jerusalem. Isaiah 22 has in mind the time of Hezekiah, a noble king, but Hezekiah's court was not all noble. He had an evil official named Shebna who would be placed, who would later be replaced by a good official named Eliakim. So listen to how Isaiah 22, 15 to 22, speaks of hues of power and of an open door. It says this, Isaiah twenty-two fifteen. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here, and whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carved a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O oh, you strong. Notice this language, you strong man, you powerful seeming man. He will seize firm hold of you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there you shall, shall be your glorious chariots, your shame of your master's house. You shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you'll be pulled down from your station. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand, your strength, your power to his hand. See the role reversal of those having little power, then having a big future? And it finally says, And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. This wouldn't have been some little key out of your pocket. This would have been a great big key that could open the gate. And it says he'll place this on his shoulder. It says, He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. You see that clearly Jesus in Revelation 3, 7 is referencing Isaiah 22, 22. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So what can we learn from this? Well, as with the prophecies in the Bible, we learn they're compressed. They mean something then, and then they mean something now. For Eliakim, it means something for God's greater kingdom and temple. It means something. But 
same for, 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 it meant something for Lycom, but then it means something for God's greater kingdom later, I meant to say. Or say for Jesus' prophecy in Revelation 3, it meant something the keys did for the church at Philadelphia, but it also means something for all the churches in all time everywhere. It meant something, and it means something. This is often the case with the nature of biblical prophecy, the genre of biblical literature called prophecy. It meant something, and it means something. It flowers. For Philadelphia, it meant something. It meant to them that Jesus already had accomplished the true and better doorkeeper. He'd already accomplished the keys to the house of David, the better, the better and final temple where we would dwell together with our God. It meant something to them then because Jesus was already walking with them and saying these promises were as sure as gold to them. They were as sure as money in the bank. The promises of David apply to God's people and even apply to the church. Listen to Matthew 16, where it says, in the context of Peter professing the name of Christ as Messiah, receiving this gospel, it says something of authority and power and keys. Simon Peter replied to the question of Jesus' authority about what designation belonged to Jesus, and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that was quite a declaration at that time. Jesus answered Peter with profound words, that we continue to cherish and to consider. He said, Blessed are you, Simon, or Peter, for flesh and blood did not, has not revealed this to you. And it never is revealed by flesh and blood. Only the Lord can reveal the gospel to you. You must regenerate your heart before you can have faith. And it says here, It was the Father in heaven that revealed this to Peter. And he says to Peter, then Jesus does profoundly, that on this rock... This confession, this gospel, the people of faith, on this rock of who Jesus is, I will build up my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You say, well, what does this have to do with the keys? Well, verse 19 makes it clear. I will give you the keys, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, how we keep our number at church really seems to matter. Our philosophy for ministry, our professed doctrine like our statement of faith, they seem to matter to Jesus. Our love for one another, our care, our correction, our community seems to matter. Till death do us part, and we do part to meet. That's the promise of the Lord. Jesus, the Messiah, named as Peter named him, names us with him. Jesus secures our salvation. Like these at Philadelphia, that we might be like having little power, rural churchmen, you're A-listers, celebrities in the house of God. You're in. The door is open for you. It can't be shut. This is meant to encourage you. This is meant to give you hope. Revelation 3.7 speaks of a judgment of Shebna's being shut out and of a salvation of Eliakim's being open and in. John the Baptist uses similar language to illustrate God's children as wheat preserved for salvation and God's enemies as chaff reserved for judgment. You can see it in Matthew 3.12. This John the Baptist in Matthew 3 gave this illustration about wheat and chaff before baptizing Jesus in fulfillment of the word, the holy and true Jesus, which that baptism was pleasing to God. The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. All of this is about Jesus. And this Jesus is offering words of hope to troubled people of little strength. Your salvation is based on Jesus saying, you're with me. 
You're with me. You're with me. It's secured based on what Jesus has done for you. Your past will not count against you. Jesus has covered your sin, and He is the one that lets you in. And He not only secures your salvation when you receive Him by faith, but He also sustains you in your salvation over the course of your life. Notice, secondly, today, Jesus sustains us personally. Look at Revelation 3.8 in your Bible. Notice how it begins. It begins with, I know you, or your. I know you. Oh, to be known. Isn't that a big need that we have? I know your works. I know you is the indication. It's a personal felt need. Even introverts desire intimacy. And extroverts remind us over and over and over of how much they need to be known. This knowing of you by Jesus is a personal knowing. It's a grind to be faithful, and Jesus knows it. Philadelphia is the church of the wheat. Philadelphia is like Eliakim, not Shebna. Little apparent power, but Jesus is aware of you personally in your little acts of faith. Eugene Peterson defines faithfulness as a long obedience in the same direction. A different author said a, a little bit more quippily, you say that you want to change the world, but you haven't yet changed a diaper. Five of the other seven churches have corrections offered to them. Corrections for the need of warmth and teaching and purity and discipline in life. Philadelphia, like Smyrna, the sixth and the second of the seven churches listed in Revelation 2 and 3, they don't get corrections. Jesus doesn't give them corrections in their letter. Philadelphia just gets encouraged to keep on keeping on. Like, we might say, read the Bible again. Keep on keeping on. Do family worship time again. Pray with your family. Go to church again. Read the minutes from the members meeting again. Show up on time again. Love well again. Jesus sees. Jesus knows your works personally. He knows you. Philadelphia, while imperfect, is described faithfully in faithful terms. In terms of faithfulness. While their church facility might have been much, not have been much to look at, could have been needed in, of repair that they couldn't afford, they were alive unlike Sardis. Not depending on prospering like Laodicea. Not depending on history of pedigree preacher like a, preachers like the cold, orthodox, unloving Ephesian church. Not given to false teachers like Pergamum or to sexual license like those that were in the church at Thyatira. Philadelphia doesn't tolerate Jezebel's. But they're not hateful about it. Philadelphia is about love for the brothers and the sisters that have been deceived by the Jezebels. They never quite get over their loss. It bothers faithful Christians. We care. In a word, Jesus knows. He knows how much you care before he even cares how much you know. One said, and people don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. I want you to know that Jesus does care what you know, but long before he cares what you know about his word, he cares for you. And he instills within your heart a heart once cold and dead, a heart with warmth and of love for your fellow man and for your fellow church members, for people of faith. 
If Jesus took care of your righteousness and salvation, now he's taking care of your morale as you go along in the days of this short yet important life. Yes, your life is short, but it's important. The days of your life are important. You need to know that this morning. Jesus knows that you're not the one that will continually deny his name out there at work or at school. He knows that you are patient, plotting, persevering in your home. Perfectly no, but faithfully yes. Jesus is observing your long obedience in the same direction and how you're being led not to despise the days of small things, like Zechariah writes, and not operating by power or might, but by the Spirit, says the Lord, like Zechariah 4, 6 says. Jesus continues to know that you continue to keep His Word, like Revelation 3, 8 and 3, 10 say. You know, as an aside today, I finally discovered expositional preaching about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, and I'm really glad that I did because I didn't grow up with it. Um, And I've preached about 1,000 sermons to date, about 650 here on Sunday mornings in the last 20 years. In April, at about Easter time, which is April 4th this year, 2021, can't believe I'm saying that, 2021. Uh, But in April, just a little after that, will have been 20 years I've been here. And so about 650 Sunday morning sermons, um, about 400 of them have been expositional. Here's some of the books that we've gone through together, like Philippians and Galatians, Timothy, Titus, Genesis. Do you remember us getting that phrase established, slow as Genesis? It became a phrase to describe plodding along through a book in the church or plodding along about anything, kind of like the phrase, that's so 2020 has been a phrase, become a phrase that describes the struggle of life. It's a catch-all kind of phrase. We even had a cake after we finished Genesis in here because it took two years. We had it out there, but we had a cake. Slow as Genesis. I remember preaching through Corinthians recently in Lamentations, and now Revelation. The main point of each text that we go through should be the main point of the sermon for that sermon to be considered expositional. It's why I thought so, many, so long and hard about Revelation 3, 7 to 13. Is it about love? Is it about the Word? Is it about power? Is it, what is it really about? Now, I won't hit it perfectly, but the liberation to know what I'm supposed to be aiming for, for your good and for His glory, is so special. You need to expect expositional preaching from whoever stands in the pulpit in the church that you sit in and listen to. Friends, the reason why is you need to keep Jesus' Word. And how will you keep it if you don't know it? He knows when our heart is to keep his word. I went to a workshop last year with a couple of brother pastors. It was a Simeon Trust workshop. And it was actually to prepare to preach on Revelation. And the word is used, I can testify again and again, to sustain the preacher, to sustain the people. When I drink deeply from his word, he helps me through the day. And it's, it's noticeable when I'm not drinking deeply from His Word. Amen? Wouldn't you agree? Do you know of this? You drink deeply from His Word and you, you know He helps you. It's, it's why we posted on our Facebook page a Bible reading plan selection sheet for anybody that would try to find a plan. Uh, we want to encourage you to do that. Not to discourage you for what you haven't finished, but to encourage you to read God's Word, to keep His Word. Augustus Toplady, author of famed hymn that we sang today, Rock of Ages, once said of a new year, Upon a review of the past year, 
I desire to confess that my unfruitfulness has been exceedingly great, my sins still greater, and God's mercies greater than them both. His mercy is on us when we seek to do disciplined, ordinary things, tend to the ordinary means of grace. One of our members emailed me this week, and I appreciate her email so much. She said, I think it was four years ago when I remember you challenging us to read through the Bible in a year. I committed to doing so, but I wasn't able to keep up with the pace. Well, I finally finished, she wrote. Praise God. She said, I spent about three hours tonight pushing through in an attempt to get it done before midnight, but I failed again. One last failure on this journey to completion. It didn't happen, but that's fine with me. I finished this morning. Anyways, happy new year and thanks for the challenge. My wife did in a year what it took me three years to complete in my reading. So this is for your encouragement to read through the Bible, to set out to do it, to keep God's word. You need to know it in order to keep it. We urge you to the word, not to discourage you for what you haven't done, but to encourage you to know the word, that you might keep the word. That's what's happening in Revelation 3, 7 to 13. This church is being commended for keeping the word. You see it in verse 8. You see it in verse 10. To keeping the word through times of struggle and through times of rejection. When James Hamilton was speaking on this text, he quoted from the biography of Charles Simeon, that workshop that I was talking about earlier, the Simeon Trust Workshop, is named after Pastor Charles Simeon. He pastored Trinity Church in Cambridge, England for 54 years. Let me tell you a little bit about his biography. He preached his first sermon there in November of 1782. The congregation didn't want him there. For five years, they refused to allow him to be the Sunday afternoon lecturer, giving it instead to another pastor. They wanted the church hierarchy to appoint over him. When that man left after five years, the church gave the lecture to another man for seven years, all the time refusing to allow Simeon to lecture on Sunday afternoons. Simeon responded by holding a Sunday evening service later than the Sunday afternoon lecture. People from the town began to come. The church wardens locked the doors, leaving people crowded in the street. Simeon had a locksmith open the doors, but when the wardens again locked the doors, he dropped the evening service. Only after 12 years did the church invite Simeon to lecture on Sunday afternoons for the first time. On Sunday mornings, the pew holders refused to come to church, and they locked their pew doors. They had doors to the pews. Simeon personally funded and set up seats in the aisles and the nooks and the corners, but the church wardens removed them, throwing them out of the building. Simeon attempted to visit the members of the church, but few doors would open to him. The opposition continued for 10 years, and the historical records indicate that Charles Simeon was helped by a legal decision in 1792 to the effect that the pew holders could no longer lock the pews and stay away indefinitely. What sustained Charles Simeon from, for, through all this powerlessness and trouble? John Piper wrote it like this. He said, Charles Simeon exerted his influence through sustained expositional biblical preaching year after year. This was the central labor of his life, Simeon preached in the same pulpit for 54 years through extraordinary opposition and trials. We need to be so rooted and grounded that when fierce winds of opposition and rejection and persecution blow into our lives, we stand like oaks of righteousness. Friend, you cannot wait until the trial comes to become convictional. You must decide now and know now and stand now on the Word of God. Whenever trials come, you must be prepared. And the time to prepare is now. 
Jesus commends the church in Philadelphia for keeping his word. They get an open door and a promise that they will be kept from the coming hour of trial. If we are to stand as oaks of righteousness, we must keep God's word. That's how we persevere. Brothers, lend your ears to our next three expositors as they seek to feed your soul with the food of the word. Lord willing, these next three weeks, it'll be Jonas who has been leading our music this morning. He'll be preaching Lord willing and wellness prevailing next week from Galatians and then Mark Parmenter preaching from Micah the following week, and then Brother Kurt Moore, who's pray for his family as he's recovering, be preaching from the Psalms the following week. Lend them your ears. Be steady in your time alone with God, in your family prayers. If you have little children, bring them to Sunday school, where we'll be talking about family worship time in our project called Telios, starting back January 17th. Oaks are built over a long time, but they stand the test of time. I wrote in my journal last week, which I do recommend if you don't do this, I recommend that when you read your Bible, you have some kind of a notebook, some kind of a journal, write things down. You know, we write things down when they're important to us. We remember more things when we write them down. We synthesize and collate information better when we write things down. I assure you, if it was an important message on a phone call, you'd write it down. You would want to forget it. You don't want to forget the insights God gives you by his word. They're critical to you learning the word and keeping with the word. So I want to encourage you to write things down. This is something that I wrote. I want to shepherd a people that when they sweat, drops of Bible beat up on their head. When they breathe, vapors of the Bible create a misty fog and the cold air outside their mouths. And when their skin is scraped, they bleed drops of Bible. I want to be worthy when I want us to be worthy when we die of the people giving us an epitaph that reads, she really knew her Bible. He really knew his Bible. I want the earth dwellers to know of us Bible knowers. Isn't that what we need? And I want to refresh that as this new year comes. That's what we need. Jesus knows you need to keep his word. And he helps you through it. He sustains you by his word and he helps you through his word. Jesus will then keep you in the hour of trial. Revelation 3.10 says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. The Greek construction is tereo ek, keep you from. And it is the same construction that John uses in the Gospel of John during his high priestly prayer. Consider John 17, 12 to 18. When I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Notice that construction. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Notice the similarities with keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Friends, your sanctification is through not avoiding trials. And your sanctification is in the word of truth. That's why I don't think Revelation 3.10 is talking about us missing trials and tribulation, but rather about being sustained through it. 
Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to, to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon, this text says. Jesus knows your current situation, and he not only saves you, but he sustains you through the hours of your trial. And thirdly and finally, Jesus vindicates you ultimately. You know, if I'm going to make a sacrifice with my life, if I'm going to give my life to something, I need to know it's worth it. And I'm going to tell you, dearly beloved, giving your life to Jesus, becoming a student of his word, walking in the word, it's totally worth it. Jesus vindicates. This is something that's not often talked about from the Bible, but I believe it's clearly in Revelation 3. Revelation 3.9, you see, says that by not denying Jesus' name, the Jews that were, were Jews in ethnicity only had kicked the Christians out of fellowship in the synagogue. And this hurt the Christians because those believers couldn't have exemption from Roman imperial cult worship. And so their well-being and their livelihoods and even their lives were on the line, as I've taught in previous weeks. So these Jews that were not Jews, to quote Revelation 2.9 and Revelation 3.9, not only hurt the Philadelphia church members, but also hurt the progress of the gospel. This is not benign. Those Jews that were not Jews, that thought they were children of Abraham, thought they had the keys of David, thought they were doing God's work, were actually harming the cause of the Messiah. And what this text says, if you'll let your eyes glance down at Revelation 3, 9 and following, is that they will learn that Jesus has set his love on the faithful Christians. They will learn that Jesus has loved them. Friend, he's not ashamed of you when you're not ashamed of him. What intimacy, what love is this? They, the Jews that are not Jews, will be shocked to learn that they were wrong about the name of Jesus, that sweet name that is above every name. They will bow and they will beg for this knowledge. Every knee will bow and tongue will confess one day that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I want you to know this morning, unbeliever, there's still time for you to avoid being shut out. But time is short. You must trust in Jesus the holy and righteous one, to cover the gap of all your unrighteousness and unholiness. You must put your faith in Jesus. I'm telling you, it's totally worth it. You will be vindicated, but you will also likely have little power in this life. Won't you discover that he has set his love on his people, on you, and that all the promises of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, from Adam to Abraham to David, are granted to you through Jesus, that every promise of the Lord finds its yes and amen in Jesus. And love, 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 love abounds. Revelation 3.12 shows us that God's people, though rejected from the sinful synagogue, will be pillars in a terrific temple. Pillars would not mean, means that they would not be scared of the earthquakes that ravaged the old city Philadelphia anymore, scarring them from building houses there after A.D. 17 with their great earthquake always afraid the next disaster would happen, that the other shoe would drop. Jesus not only knows our fears of pestilence, of viruses, of natural disasters like earthquakes, of marginalization of society. He not only knows our fears, but he vindicates us ultimately. He vindicates us ultimately, beloved. This text proves that. Revelation 3 says, not even you can shut the door on yourselves. Look at Revelation 3a. 
To be loved is the true open door to salvation. Jesus not only secures your salvation, but sustains you personally and vindicates you ultimately before the throne of God above. They will know, those that cause you a hard time and reject Jesus will know in the end that you are Jesus's and you will have your deepest longings for power met in the right way in Jesus without sin. You can't be put out of this temple, Revelation 3.12 says. Never shall you go out of it. You're permanently in the presence of God. And your deep need for family, for belonging, for acceptance, for society, that comes with a new name in a new perfect city where God dwells again with man, like the uncorrupted Garden of Eden, with this curse undone, never to be redone, with sweet redemption in the by and by. Our knowledge of evil will finally be completely overcome with the knowledge of the holy, the good, the true, and the beautiful, the knowledge of Christ. We'll never again be deceived by what we think we need of power in this sin-stricken world, for Jesus will be our supplier. You know, we're told in Revelation 3.12 three times that our hunger to make a name for ourselves is met in Jesus' finished work and what he has coming as he vindicates his people. He will write on him the name of my God, in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven with my own new name. Three times the promise of a name is given. And yet we want to make a name for ourselves. Oh, you of little power, but big faith, be a finisher, be a conqueror, be a patient endurer, be faithful, be faithful, be faithful. I appreciate how Kevin Young ended his sermon as well as how I began his sermon on this text about a little church with a big future, a church like Philadelphia, this church at Philadelphia, the sixth of seven churches, a word for many churches. He encouraged, as the old saying goes, most of us vastly overestimate what we can do for God in five years, and we grossly underestimate what we might be able to do for God in 50 years. He expressed, like I would express similarly, that when I first started in ministry, I thought, well, we'll get this problem taken care of in six months or less, you know. And then it didn't happen. So, well, in six more months, we'll get this taken care of. And then, well, let's recalibrate. Well, we'll get it done in six years. And then eventually say, well, there's always heaven. It seems like the problems in the church don't totally get fixed. I guess that's the point. You know, I can relate that steady as she goes, not impressive by the world's standards, seemingly small, but a lifetime of faithfulness is what we're called to, whether we get results or not. It's really not the point, is the result. Jesus is the result. He is the promise. He is the true and better doorkeeper. He is the name that above all name is above all names. He is the one that opens the door that can't be shut on your behalf. He is the fulfillment of all the promises. And the gospel is that you put your trust in him. A lifetime of faithfulness, showing up, sitting up, greeting up, praying up, coming, supporting, giving meals to the needy looking after the sick and afflicted, sharing the gospel when we have opportunities. The days and the weeks and the years add up to a lifetime, and small things add up to great faithfulness. The temple will be built. Jesus promises it. So whether you're a struggling student, a retiree, a wandering 20-something, you may have little strength, but mind the message of Philadelphia today, friends. As we conclude, mind the message of Philadelphia. Be patient. Keep the word by knowing the word first. Do not despise small. God has a habit of displaying his strength 
in the midst of weakness. Bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not revealed these things to the wise and the learned, but to those who are before you as humble children, having received this gospel. We don't want to be children in our understanding, but children in our understanding of our own limitations, our own dependence upon you. Give to us whatever strength that we stand in need of in this hour, in this week, in this month, in this year. And if we are too confident in our own strength, give us the gift of seeing our own weakness. Today we pray for schools and students, educators, for those who have recently lost loved ones, for believers to attach themselves to a church, for faithful ministry and missions in the churches this year, for faithfulness in study, for prayer for one another, for a warmth to our love, and for those sick with coronavirus to be well. We pray for every personal need to be seen and known before you, O Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.